Please stand for the reading of the word. Today's scripture is John 11, 1 through 6, 17 through 45. This is the story of Lazarus. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up and quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his heads and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Teresa, we're grateful to you for reading our lesson this morning and to the wonderful music that we have uh, been privy to today. We're grateful to Joy Sound, to Asbury, to Chancel Choir, all who have led. Uh, it is so, so good to be with you in God's house on this, the fifth Sunday of Lent. And I wanna add my word of greeting to that of Adams. To those of you who, who are online with us, uh, it is an honor to greet you and to welcome you and to share uh, God's word and worship with each of you as well. Our text this morning is found exclusively in John's narrative, the fourth gospel. Unlike the synoptic gospels, namely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was not just the cleansing of the temple that led to the death of Jesus, it was the raising of Lazarus. According to John, in lieu of this miracle, the religious authorities saw a predicament with the Roman government that could possibly threaten the entire Jewish community because if word got out that a messianic king was on the rise, you can be sure that the Jewish religious leaders uh, would be held responsible and there would be hell to pay. In verse 46, which is just after uh, what Teresa read for us, we see that Jesus is a marked man. They're now looking for a way to get rid of him. And it's ironic to me, and maybe to you, that the raising of a dead man would eventually lead to the death of the one who is the resurrection and the life. But we're gonna talk more about this next Sunday on Palm Sunday, which we sometimes call Passion Sunday, which begins Holy Week a week from now. But for today, the story begins with what I call a pastoral call. It's a crisis call. A message is sent to Jesus concerning the need of a dear friend. And it's interesting to note in John that Jesus not only has disciples, but Jesus actually has friends, companions, confidants, with whom occasionally he can have a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, he can relax, he can hang out, and kind of be himself. It's curious because John, more than any other gospel, highlights the divinity of Jesus. But this reference to friends, I think, highlights the humanity of Jesus. In fact, the specific Greek term, which is used in verse 11, John 11, is philos, P-H-I-L-O-S, philos, which is a term of endearment. You know philia, brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's a term of endearment. 
spoken specifically of those colleagues who are near and dear to us. It's also interesting that a few chapters later in John 15, Jesus would actually say to his disciples, look, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus had friends. You may know the name Dr. George Valiant. Dr. Valiant is an American psychologist and professor at Harvard Medical School. He has spent his entire life studying adult development. His research reveals the secrets of what he calls a fulfilling life. Such things as exercise, adaptive coping skill, education, but says Dr. Valiant, the single most important trait to a meaningful life is healthy relationships. Says Valiant, happiness is love, period. There are two pillars of happiness. One is love, the other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. And you have experienced that before, perhaps in your own family, of those who pushed love away. Finally, in the end of the article, which I read, quoting Virgil, Dr. Vayant says, love conquers all. He might have also quoted Jesus, who says, by this shall all people know that you're mine by the way you love. In 2018, researchers at UCLA fielded a survey about the epidemic of loneliness that we've talked about before, in which, 50, get this, 54% of those questioned said, and I quote, we often feel like nobody really knows us well. Jesus had friends that he knew well. In Bethany, two miles out of Jerusalem, some of you have been there, and they knew him pretty well too. Siblings, Mary, Martha, of course, Martha was an eight on the Enneagram. She could run it and run you off at the same time. And there was Mary who was a two, a helper. The siblings, they were often, Jesus was often a guest in their home. We read in Luke 10, for example, that Jesus on one occasion taught a discipleship seminar at Martha's place and used her place as a place of worship. In fact, her kitchen table became Jesus's lectern. Her dining room became a sanctuary. I think it was Ben Franklin who said, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And Lazarus had a need. It's unusual for John, who is a man of detail, who, who gives more detail in the gospel than any of the other writers, not, not to give the specifics of his illness. Uh, we don't know. Was it a heart attack? Maybe a stroke, maybe a seizure, we don't know. But what we do know is that his sisters were so alarmed by his illness that they sent a message to their rabbi, their pastor. Lord, your friend is ill. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. And that's not just an FYI message, that's an implicit request. The sisters believe that if Jesus actually knows the need, that surely Jesus will respond. But this is so unusual 
that when he gets the message, what does he do? Nothing. When Jesus gets the message of the illness, he stays put for two more days. And I think to myself, so much for friendship. I have a favorite song from the 70s, and I'm dating myself at this point. It was written by a woman named Carol King. It's called You've Got a Friend. She and her friend James Taylor made famous this wonderful song, and people have uh, redone this song over and over again. What you may not know is that Carol King wrote this song after listening to a song by James Taylor called Fire and Rain, in which one of his lyrics said, I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. She, knowing that he was an addict and also depressed, wrote these words, you just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call and I'll be there. You've got a friend. But what do you do when you call and nobody answers? I think the ethos at this point in the text, at least for me, is that there are times, there are moments in our lives where it feels like Jesus is unaware of my need. I had an epiphany a while back where it occurred to me that not everything that's a crisis to me is actually a, a crisis to Jesus. And, and it's not that he doesn't care, it's not that he's unaware, but perhaps Jesus can see beyond the calamity, beyond the crisis. Some of the things I get anxious about do not necessarily constitute a crisis for Jesus. For example, when the cable goes off during March Madness, <laughs> in the last two minutes of the, well, that's a crisis for anybody. When the Braves don't make it to the World Series, or as Adam might say, when the Red Sox don't make it to the playoffs, that's, that's a crisis. But not everything that we think of as a crisis is a crisis to Jesus. That was true for Martha. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, you remember she hosted a little dinner party for Jesus, and she got so panicky, so stressed over the menu that she missed the main event. She missed the guest of honor. You see, this also is true for the disciples. And this is in Matthew 8, where one night they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Some of us have done that together. And during the late hours, a cloud came and that cool air rushed down through the mountains and all of a sudden turned that quiet sea into a potential shipwreck. And, and they were scared to death and the translations don't quite get it right. Let me share the Revised Chapel version. They came to Jesus in the boat and they said, teacher, we are in a titanic mess. It appears as though you don't care. And Jesus, they found him asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. He was at perfect peace. Not because he was unaware, not because he didn't care, but because he had the power, apparently, to calm the storm. Which relays to me that even storms can actually become a venue for revelation. I've been at this for 40 years, preaching Jesus, and I've discovered the trouble with Jesus. You know what it is? 
The trouble with Jesus is he doesn't jump every time I say jump. He doesn't always respond on central standard time, at least not on mine. He stays put for two days. What is that about? Jesus sees beyond the predicament. In fact, he says in no uncertain terms to his disciples, look, this illness is not going to end in death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He is not saying that God is the cause of all calamity. He's not saying that God is the cause of all suffering. He's saying that God can actually use our suffering. And furthermore, this is very important. He doesn't say that illness, that this illness will not pass through death. He says it won't end in death. And I think he's talking about not just the first death, but the second death, eternal death. So all that to say that Jesus' response is not dictated by panic, but by providence. Back to the story. When Jesus gets near to Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, Martha runs out to meet him. And I love this. This is so Martha. What does she do? She gets in his face. She's fussing at Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened. If you'd been here, our brother would not have died. We called, you didn't answer. We prayed, we petitioned, petitioned, you didn't come. If only you had been here. What she's really saying is this, Lord, where have you been? She's, she's fussing at Jesus. She's lamenting. There's an old Yiddish word for this. She's kvetching. And it's the grief talking. What Jesus doesn't do, and I love this, he doesn't get all huffy and touchy and sensitive and defensive and say, well, I'll just find some other friends. He listens. He listens. I think there's a reason that God gave us one of these and two of these. I was reading a book that the bishop recommended the other day. It's called Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose. And there's a great quote from this book, which I want to share with you. Leadership is more about public listening than public speaking. That's a good word. Hard for a preacher to take, but that's a good word. Another quote is this, agreement is overrated. It's understanding that we need. And Jesus listens and Jesus understands. And here's what I love about Miss Martha. In the same breath that she's fussing at Jesus, She's professing faith in Jesus. Even now, she says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And that's not FYI either. That's an implicit request. Even when this sorrowful woman lacks understanding, she trusts Jesus and she runs to meet him. I think we could all take a lesson from Martha at this point, and that is this, when you're hurting, and we all do, when you're hurting, it's no time to run away from Jesus, it's time to run to Jesus. And he will meet you with open ears and open arms and an open heart. Lord, if you had been here, 
And then Jesus says, uh, Martha, he, he tells her something she already knows. Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, oh, I, I know that. I know the theology. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Did you know that most of the Jews, even the Pharisees, believed in a general resurrection that would come at the end of time, at the end of history? But then Jesus says something that's absolutely stunning to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though you die, yet shall you live. Isn't it interesting that at every service of resurrection, of death and resurrection, we begin with those words. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, even if you die, yet shall you live. And then Jesus gets personal. Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes. I believe that you're the Messiah. You're the one to come. And then Martha leaves. Mary comes, has a similar encounter with one difference. While Martha gets in Jesus' face, Mary falls on her face at his feet. And don't miss this. Both of those expressions are forms of prayer. One is a lamentation. One is adoration. And then they go to the graveyard. Verse 35, and this is really, for me, I'm speaking, is one of the high watermarks of the New Testament. Three words. And Jesus wept. Talk about humanity. Jesus so identifies with the grief of his friends that he just loses it. He breaks down and cries. I don't know who said it, but I think it's true. Grief is the price we pay for love. And surely that is so. When they get to the tomb, Jesus says to the pallbearers who are still there, take away the stone. And again, this is Martha. Martha interrupts, but Lord, there's going to be a smell, going to be a stench. He's been dead for four days. I love the King James Version. He stinketh. That was my favorite verse when I was six. <laughs> He's been gone for four days. What difference? Do, just say for several days. It makes a difference. I'll tell you why. The Jews believed that after the death of a loved one, the spirit of the deceased remained and hovered over the grave for three days. But on the fourth day, as the body decomposes, the spirit departs. And this is day four. This is John's way of saying, this man is graveyard dead. He's bought the farm. He's dead as a doornail. And then Jesus begins to pray. Watch out. He doesn't petition God. He thanks God. This is what he says. Abba, Daddy, thank you for hearing me. Thank you that you always listen to me. Thank you for our constant contact. Thank you for our constant communion. And at this point, while Jesus is praying, the undertaker begins to get a little nervous. He checks the ledger to make sure the bills have been paid. And then Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Teresa, I love the way you read it. Lazarus, come out. 
It's a good thing that Jesus attached a name to the command or the whole cemetery would have come up. And he did come out. And watch this. He came out wearing his grave clothes. Two weeks from today, we're going to celebrate another who rose up, who left his grave clothes behind. That's interesting. The difference between these two is that Lazarus will need his shroud again. And Jesus leaves his behind. Oh, that's good news. I love John 20. It actually says that Jesus even folded his grave clothes. Boy, I could have used that with my children. How about you? He folded his grave clothes. One translation says he folded the napkin that was covering his face, the linen napkin. What does that mean? It has meaning. I'll tell you what it means. In ancient Judaism, the way the servant knew that the master was finished with his meal at the table was when he wadded up his napkin and laid it beside his plate. That's how he knew he was finished. But if the host went somewhere for a moment and folded his napkin beside the plate, it was a signal to the servant, I'm not finished. And when they come to the tomb in John 20 and see a folded face cloth, it means he's not finished. Lazarus was the only man who ever lived, I think, who had two funerals, two eulogies, two gravesides, two eulogies. I can imagine the second eulogy was a far cry different from the first one. And Jesus never had a eulogy. Jesus didn't do funerals. He did resurrections. Our friend. There's a great line in James Baldwin's book, The Fire, next time. It says this, listen to this. The Lord never seems to get there when you want him, but when he arrives, he's always on time. <laughs> he's on time. Last word. Eugene O'Neill was the first American playwright to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Early on in his career, he wrote a play, you probably didn't know this, called Lazarus Laughed. It's about Lazarus's life after Jesus raised him. And in one scene, they're having a party now for Lazarus. Uh, after he's been raised, they're warming up the leftovers that were intended for the wake, and they're hosting not a memorial meal, but a meal of honor for him. It's potato salad, Methodist casserole, Welch's grape juice, of course, and all you can eat. And everybody's waiting. They're just waiting with bated breath to hear what this man's gonna say. Not about his near-death experience, but his death experience. But according to the script, before he ever utters a word, one of the guests who was there when Jesus said, take the stone away, when he sees Lazarus come into the party, his, he is transfixed by Lazarus' face. And in the script, Mr. O'Neill articulates what the guest said when he saw the countenance of this dead man walking. And this is what he said. The whole look on his face has changed. 
He's like a stranger from a foreign land. There's no longer any sorrow in his eyes. And I suppose he left sorrow in the grave. It kind of looks like death has lost its sting. End of quote. What's true for Lazarus is true for all who are friends of Jesus. The life that Jesus makes possible does not begin at the funeral. It begins while your heart is still beating. It doesn't begin in the great beyond. It begins in the here and now when we simply trust in his name. And that's why we sometimes sing What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's what friends are for. We started this journey five weeks ago with the imposition of ashes on our forehead, reminding us that we are dust, and to dust we will return. But John 11 wants you to know that God can do marvelous things with dust, especially when dust learns to trust. And that's what friends are for. I tell you, as important as it is to have a friend like that, it's also important to be a friend like that. For Christ's sake, may it be so. In Jesus' name.